Welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. This is the second of our back-to-back episodes on naming. My name is Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. On this episode, I'm really excited to be talking with Brittany Scott, creative director from Addison Whitney, about naming new drugs. It sounds easy, but I learned there's a lot more to it than I had thought. Naming new drugs on the Cineos Health Podcast, next. Brittany Scott, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're creative director at Addison Whitney. Can you just start by telling me something about Addison Whitney? Sure. Addison Whitney is a global branding company. Our main responsibility is to create brands from the very beginning, from their inception. It's a pretty unique place to be, especially in pharmaceuticals. We're often dealing with assets that don't even have a non-proprietary name, much less a brand name at this point. Clients come to us and are really looking to start that journey, start that process, and that includes not just naming, but also creating a visual identity. So we also work on that. We work on brand strategy and positioning for the brands, as well as offering market research and supporting validation studies to help launch brands. And Addison Whitney doesn't work just in pharmaceuticals. It works across different products and different classes of companies, right? Yes. So we do a large portion of our work is in the pharmaceutical space, but we also work in B2B. We work in consumer products. We work in med device and other healthcare spaces, and we also do corporate identities. And a large number of pharmaceuticals have been named by Addison Whitney, correct? Yes. We have over 400 brand approvals since our inception, which was in 1991. In the last 10 years or so, I would say about 50% of the top 200 pharmaceutical brands by profit have been either named or validated by Addison Whitney. So if I think about naming a pharmaceutical, that's the one thing I think that anybody thinks I could do that. How hard could it be to find a really catchy name? So what is so hard about that? Tell me how it works. I'm so interested to hear how it works. Right. We definitely have to explain that this is not your average everyday naming assignment. I think almost everybody in their life has named something, either a dog or a child or even your car. And that's certainly a fun and creative exercise. But naming within the pharmaceutical industry is much more strategic. There are a lot of regulatory concerns that we have to keep in mind. There's also legal and trademark issues that are running parallel to the regulatory screening. So that's something that we at Addis Whitney specialize in. So not only are we generating creative name ideas, but we're providing options that are viable out in the marketplace, both from a safety regulatory perspective, as well as a trademark and ownability perspective. So the trademark and ownability aside, I think that's probably more of an IP kind of issue that you'd think of more of as a legal issue. What is a safety issue with a name? Is that that you just don't want to have a name that sounds like something that would be dangerous to prescribe to the patient? What do you mean by safety there? Pharmaceutical products are screened against other products on the market from a safety perspective. So when we think about a drug that could be prescribed and be mistaken for something else so that a patient might get the wrong prescription and that could cause them harm, we definitely want to avoid any type of similarities like that. So most pharmaceutical drugs are screened from what we call a look-alike or a sound-alike perspective. So we want to make sure that they don't look too similar when written on paper to another drug, and we want to make sure they don't sound when spoken 
too similar to another drug. Certainly prescriptions have come a long way as far as a lot of electronic and digital opportunities, but there are still places where prescriptions are written down on paper. And we know doctors are not notorious for having good handwriting. So we want to make sure that the drug is distinguishable and very unique, that it wouldn't get confused with another potential drug and cause harm to the patient. Do you go to the point of cursive writing versus block writing? (laughs) We actually do. We get sample prescriptions written and we analyze that data. So we do have panelists that we ask just to write the name. Like, how would you write this word on paper? And we get lots of different handwriting samples so that we can see a variety of different scripts. And we take that time to compare and use that during our market research testing for safety purposes. What surprised you there with the handwriting side, if anything? (laughs) The biggest thing I've learned, and certainly I've been doing this for about seven years, and I've noticed that a lot of letters look very similar when they're written down. So you don't think about a name that starts with A being similar to a name that starts with C or G. But when written, if a person chooses to write a capital A as a very large lowercase a, that rounded curve can look just like a C or a G. So oftentimes, even though it may not sound the same, a lookalike concern for drugs that start with A and C or G is actually a very real concern. Is that the biggest part of naming is this part of the safety aspect or is it more on the creative side? Like if you were to split your time between creative and safety, leaving legal aside, how would you say that the workflow really goes? It's about a 50-50 split. There's definitely a very large creative side to this. It's strategic naming, so we talk about being creative in a very strategic way. We're not just throwing ideas out there. We definitely have a purpose. We have a message. We have a tone that we're looking to achieve with the brand. So we're naming towards an end goal, but keeping in mind all of the regulatory concerns, keeping in mind all the things that we can't do in a name. So despite the lookalike, sound-alike, there are also other things that we're not supposed to do and that the regulatory bodies will reject. Things like promotional opportunities. We can't be overly promotional in our name. We can't say that it's the ultimate. We can't say that it's going to cure anything. We can't say that it's going to completely stop something if it's stopping the spread of a disease. So anything that's overly promotional would definitely be rejected by a regulatory agency. We often have to think about global language perspectives as well. So we want to think about if the drug is going to be launched globally, how will it be pronounced? around the world. We want to think about letters that aren't used in other languages besides English and be sensitive to those things, as well as making sure it doesn't translate into a foreign word or something that's slightly negative or maybe has a slang connotation around the world. Do you just choose a limited subset of people that are native speakers and ask them? That's kind of a curious thing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that, right? The food that is spelled K-R-A-P-P or something like that in English didn't sell so well here. Right. Yeah, that is part of our process as well as a linguistics evaluation. Certainly, we have a global client base and we have a global employee base. So we do call upon people around our other offices to chime in. But we do have a comprehensive linguistics evaluation as well that actually analyzes the names in the key dialects that the launch plan dictates. So we want to make sure that we have native speakers in each of those regions that can give us Not only is this name, does it mean something or does it have negative connotation, but also telling us, is it easy to pronounce? Does it look like it fits with the type of product that this is? So we're asking not only language questions, but also some marketing questions as well. Do you have any horror stories from things that when you tested them in a foreign language, 
didn't work out so well? Well, most of the time, that's what the linguistics test does, is it finds those things. And so we don't have to ever share them beyond these walls. Oh, tell me. I, I would say every, every linguistics report comes back with a lot of bad words. And it never fails to surprise me what translates into a cuss word in another language. Tell me the product that you thought was just a great name in English that you couldn't say because it was a cuss word in Norway or something like that. Well, I don't have one off the top of my head. I do have lots of examples of brand names that actually are not global names. So clients often ask for a global name, one name around the world, and that's great. And that is something we strive for. But there are lots of examples of names that have had to be altered slightly around the world in different geographies due to regulatory concerns or linguistics issues. Is that why you normally see different brand names in different geographies, or is it more often a regulatory issue? It could be either or. Sometimes it is a translation issue. Often it's a regulatory issue or potentially something in one particular country that might prevent, especially when you're dealing with the EU. If you try to get a global approval and you include all of the EU as one application, one individual EU country can knock out your entire application. So it might be one small country, but unless all of the countries align, you can't use that brand name across the EU. You would have to file separately. So we definitely do see clients that choose to have a different brand name in a certain market just because of the regulatory challenges. Do you tend to separate them up into the different countries and do separate names for each country? Or is it you really are trying for each EU country, do one name, and then find out whether or not it can work? I'm kind of curious if this is something that you proactively say, we should have different names in each country so that they're easily separable. We typically encourage a global name, especially if we can have it in the US and EU. That's usually a pretty strong name that can surpass all of those different geographies. Certainly sometimes in the Asian markets, we might try something different just because they have specific regulatory requirements as well as specific language needs. But we often do aim for a global name or at least one that can cover most of the geographies that the client is going for. And then if they do have to tackle individual countries, then we can help them with that as well. Brittany, you've already made me think that it's harder than I thought. So thank you for that on the downside. On the upside, it still sounds pretty easy to come up with a good name. So tell me why I'm wrong. What's the process for making a good name from the more clinical side as opposed to the we've got to make sure that it's not going to kill anybody because they took the wrong drug or because we told them that they have an ugly face? <laughs> yeah, the naming process definitely has its highs and lows. Like I said, it's a very creative process. It's a very interesting and unique spot for us to be in. But there are a slew of obstacles that names have to cross. And certainly we help clients with that. But that is something that can get anybody down if you do it enough. So thinking about the upside, definitely trying to convey something from the very beginning. So we're dealing with products that are just at the beginning of their life. And it's really exciting because oftentimes these are groundbreaking, innovative products. They're treatments for patients with unmet needs. There's a lot of orphan drug statuses that we work with. So it's really exciting to be at the front line of those things and be able to see this brand come to life. It really goes from just a code name. It, some of them don't even have a non-proprietary name at that point. So it might just be just a code. And then we work with the client to help figure out the positioning, figure out the brand vision and the messaging. We work on strategic directions. We know that with naming, we can go down multiple paths. And so we want to be able to explore all of the opportunities. At this point, 
but really have a lot of different directions that we could try. And our goal is to have a very interactive session. We want to have a lot of creative direction, a lot of creative ideas thrown out. And then as we move through this journey, start to see that brand come to life, start to narrow in and focus on what we think the brand is really going to stand for and put the names to this brand and start to visualize this holistic image of what this brand could become. Certainly at the end of the naming process with Addison Whitney, you don't have just one name sometimes. You have several. You want to have your top name, of course, but then you also want to have backup names. You can submit several names to the EU, so oftentimes clients will choose their top two names to move forward. So at that point, the brand still isn't finalized until they actually get that regulatory approval. And at that point, they start applying logo design, visual colors, look and feel, and the brand really comes to life. And that's when it gets really exciting. I still don't get it. I've got to name a brand. I don't still know how I'm doing it and how it's any different from, I just want to come up with a name for my cat. (laughs) So that's something we actually help clients with a lot. We have lots of clients that come to us that have tried to name the drug themselves. So they come to us either with a long list of ideas or they come to us and they've already been through the process and gotten a rejection. And that's really disheartening. And they really need help not only expediting through the process, but also boosting their confidence. So that's something that we work with them. We certainly have a very interactive process. If the clients generate names, we're more than happy to bring those names into our process. We do want to make sure that we do our pre-screening on them. So that's something that Addison Whitney does very early in the process. We believe in creating names, but also pre-screening them early so that you don't fall in love with any ideas that you potentially can't have down the road. Pre-screening them? We do a pre-screening process. It's called the VET pre-screening process. It's a 10-step process that happens before clients even see the names. So unlike some other agencies where you might just see a big brainstorm and then they'll go back and screen the names afterwards, we do all of that up front. That causes obviously the major conflicts to be knocked out, which is good so that we don't present names that have conflicts. And then we say at the end of the road, oh, yeah, by the way, we don't recommend moving forward with this one, even though we gave it to you. So we feel like giving names that have been pre-screened sets the whole process up for success. We also know that the names have to go through a lot of additional steps, but doing a pre-screen up front helps alleviate some of those bigger burdens on legal and regulatory teams. Can we just try to name a fake drug? You and me, right here, right now? Sure. Yeah, I've never done that before, but okay. I don't think that there's any drug out there for a disease called myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis is a very relatively rare disease, mostly gotten by women. That's an autoimmune disease, and it causes their nerves not to work as well. So they tend to get kind of a droopier face, if I'm recalling correctly. If you have myasthenia gravis and you're listening to this and I've mischaracterized it completely, my my apologies. We'll just talk about this disease as MG and we're going to name a drug for MG. MG drug is a pill that you take once a day. Go, Brittany. What do we do? So the first step would be to gather the appropriate core team. So we definitely like to have a creative workshop where we talk about all of those directions that we can take. The obvious choices, I mean, the connection to M and G using those letters, the feminine audience tells me that maybe the name should be a little bit softer, a little bit more feminine focused, but probably not going all the way down the path of an oral contraceptive. So thinking about that, but we also want to talk about how the patients feel, like what is the patient journey like? What is the 
unmet need that this treatment is solving. Getting that core team in the room, that can include marketing people, it can include clinical people, anyone who is a touch point for this product, we would want to gather them together, have an interactive, creative session, and talk about all of the different potential options. So the next step after that would be for my team. So I have a team here at Addison Whitney of seven naming professionals, and that's all we do is name products. We definitely get together, do our individual brainstorming, do group brainstormings, think about different paths that we can take, start putting the letters down on paper. And then, of course, that pre-screening step that we talked about previously, the idea here is to take all of these ideas and validate which ones we should actually move forward and show our client and give them ideas that are pre-screened to the point where we're confident that they could move forward. If you were submitting, say, just three things off the top of your head as being ones that you would say names that you would include in pre-screening, can we just pick three names and then see what happens next? Yeah. So using the myosinus gravis example. So the idea is if we had a name that used the M and the G, so potentially Megrava, something like that could be an option, you know, M-E-G-R-A-V-A. That's a great, easy to pronounce name. It really focuses on the M and the G right at the front of the name, has a nice lyrical cadence to it. It ends in A, so it has somewhat of a feminine tone, but it also has some strength to it because we want to say that this is a potent and effective drug. Want to make sure that it's telling people that it's going to work for them. Unfortunately, something like that, so if that was one of my original ideas, unfortunately, a name like that probably wouldn't be allowed because the MEG at the beginning could connote mega, kind of on the far end of the spectrum as far as being a claim or promotional. The idea of being mega could suggest that it's better than other drugs, that it's bigger we would have to be wary of using those types of letters in our name. We also might do a quick Google screen on something like that, and we would come up with the idea that Megara is a character from the Hercules movie. So those are the types of things that come up when we think about just pop culture references and things that you may not want to be associated with. I don't know that anybody has a negative association with Megara, but we definitely do an online search, too, to make sure that we aren't conflicting or being confused with any type of pop culture or societal references. So if the client comes back and says, okay, what about Mygara? Because it's myasthenia gravis, so we can do MY. Now what? <laughs> so that's something we would proceed with caution. We certainly know that the idea of a personalized treatment, very appealing, we also know that there are some drugs out there that do have the my in them. So it has been done before, but is a little bit more of an aggressive strategy just because we do think it has an element of promotionality to it that the regulatory bodies could object to. Oh, you're making this hard. Third choice. So we've shot down one and two. Do we have a third choice that's going to be our final choice? So typically... We would think more as an aspirational treatment. We want to think about something with these patients and really providing them hope. If we're providing them peace of mind, we're providing them with relief. Perhaps we want to use something that has PAS or PAX, which is the Spanish or Latin word for peace. Maybe we want to use Zen because Zen implies peace of mind, very calm and balanced and feeling at ease with your life. Maybe we want to think about hope. How can we work with the word hope without being overly promotional? So maybe it's something along the lines of the M at the beginning, and then we have the Zen embedded. So maybe it's Minzenda or something like that. 
And then we could tell the story of having the Zen word part in there and how it communicates the peace of mind. We have the connection to the indication starting with M, but it's not as overt. It's a little bit more of a subtle connection, and that's going to be a little bit safer path for pharmaceutical brand naming from a regulatory perspective. Mazenta, you heard it here. <laughs> Unfortunately, that one probably won't fly either. That was just oh, don't tell me that, Brittany. Head. We were done. I can, we were done. I can kill that one too. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks. That's why they all look weird. And we've talked about brand names this whole time. I'll tell you, this is truly what I think. So don't get me wrong if you're going to tell me I'm wrong. Every time I see a non-brand name, I see a chemical name that I know doesn't really describe the chemical. Like sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But when it's not, it's a generic name and it's just hard to pronounce. I have in my mind that people chose on purpose to make it hard to pronounce. That true or not? <laughs> so that's an interesting sidebar because Addison Whitney, we also do non-proprietary naming as well. So often clients come to us and they have just a chemical or a molecule and they need a name for it. The ending of the name is the stem, so that is given to the molecule based on its chemical structure. I, that I knew. That we, yeah, so the part that we get to name is actually the prefix, mm -hmm. and that can be anywhere from one syllable to three or four syllables, but the names themselves are designed to be somewhat nonsensical. They're not supposed to have a lot of overt meaning. Certainly, we kind of push the envelope a little bit with that, but we want to make sure that the non-proprietary name is mostly just for identification purposes. The client, actually, because it's a non-proprietary name, once the product becomes generic, they will not own that name, and anyone can manufacture that product. So we want to make sure that the name is something that encourages use of the brand name. So like you said, sometimes being deliberately long or complicated will encourage people to use the brand name rather than the generic name. And that can be a way to help improve brand recognition and improve brand equity. Brittany, you've told me I'm right. And so I can't even <laughs> ask you any other questions. I, I, you heard it. I'm right. Thank you. I'm glad to hear my conspiracy <laughs> theory was in fact correct in this case. Of course, other people want the name to be very easy to pronounce and they want it to be elegant and pretty. And they definitely want to be associated with a name that's not complicated. So there's two schools of thought there. Brittany Scott, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me and teach me something I really didn't know and I was so interested in learning on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks very much. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk to a particular challenge that you have at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at cineoshealth.com. Dot com. That's S-Y-N-E-O-S health.com. We're consultants. That's what we do. But the names themselves are designed to be somewhat nonsensical. Nonsensical.